This past August, I was selected for jury duty. Now, has anyone here ever been selected for jury duty? Okay, a decent number of you. And the jury selection process began on a Monday in September, so I showed up hoping that I would not be selected for the trial because the fall is one of the busiest seasons for us as a church. And so I was eager not to be selected, so I had a strategy. I said, I'm going to be outspoken about being a Christian. I'm going to be outspoken about being a pastor. I even wore a Trump mega hat to the jury selection <laughs> process. I did not do that. I'm just joking. I don't recommend that. But I, I was thinking, I'll do anything. I just want to get out of this. I don't want to be in the trial. But within a few minutes, I realized I was going to be selected. And I was. And so I spent four days considering a case. And during the trial, there was, <clears throat> there was a man who was called to give an account for his behavior. There was evidence presented against him. He was questioned and cross-examined before a judge and a jury, and it was easy for me to feel the gravity of that situation, of what was happening in the courtroom. And during those four days, I couldn't help but think of the day when I will stand in the courtroom of heaven, not before a human judge, but before the eternal, all-knowing judge of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the verdict that will be rendered to each one of us will not be a sum of money owed, or time in prison, the verdict rendered will be heaven or hell, eternity in heaven or eternity in hell, eternal life or eternal death. And what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is a preview of the ultimate day where we will stand in the presence of the resurrected Jesus Christ to give an account for our lives. And so there is much for us to learn here uh, this morning, and I want to look at our text under three headings. I want to look at the certainty of judgment the curse of sin and the clues pointing to salvation. The certainty of judgment, the curse of sin, and the clues pointing to salvation. And the question I want you to consider as we study this passage is the question, how do we survive the judgment of God? How do we survive the judgment of God? If God is holy and if God is good and we are sinful, how do we survive the judgment of God? So let's start with the certainty of judgment, verse 4. It says, no, you will certainly not die. This is a lie from the devil. This is the lie that the devil tells Eve. And the lie is that you can sin and live. There is no judgment for your sin. You can sin and you can live forever. And this lie is the lie in the human heart that breaks the dam and floods the earth with human depravity. It unleashes hell on earth. Psalm 10, verse 13 Why has the wicked person despised God? So there are all kinds of people in the world. They despise God. They rebel against God. They don't care about what God has to say. They don't care about who he is. And this verse gives us insight into what's happening in their heart. Why has the wicked person despised God? What's happening in their heart? Well, he says to himself, you, God, will not demand an account. So this is the lie he tells himself. God doesn't see it. And there is no accounting, there's no day of judgment for the decisions I make. But the word of God is crystal clear, Romans 14, 12. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. You will not give an account for other people. What other people have done, you will give an account to God for everything you've ever done. And this judgment is certain. And it is the fear of judgment that drives us into hiding. Why do we hide from God? Why do we hide from other people? It is because we are afraid of judgment. In verse seven, we find Adam and Eve hiding from one another. In verse eight, we find Adam and Eve hiding from God himself. Verse eight says, 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So here's where we need to notice a principle, that sin moves God from our greatest treasure to our greatest threat. What does sin do in the human heart? Sin moves God from our greatest treasure to our greatest threat. Before they sinned, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, and they walked with God in a sinless world. They walked with God in paradise. They knew God. They loved God. God was their greatest treasure. God was their highest joy, their ultimate good, but now they're hiding from God. Why? Did God change? No, God did not change. They sinned, and this is what sin does. It drives us into hiding. Verse nine, so the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? I love this about the grace of God. If you wanna know how we relate to God, it is not man, that seeks after God. In our sinful condition, human beings will never seek after God. It is the grace of God that pursues us. Do you have any desire to know God? Do you have any love for God? Do you want to obey God? Do you love his word? Well, that is a sign of God's grace in your life, that he has pursued you with his goodness. It is God who seeks after sinners. We run from God in our sin, and so God is seeking after Adam and Eve, and he says, where are you? Verse 10, and he said, I heard you, this is what Adam says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And so here's the progression. Adam felt his nakedness. His nakedness, his nakedness caused fear and that fear led them to hide. This is the progression. When you feel your nakedness, nakedness causes fear. Fear causes us to hide. Now what is fascinating about verse 10 is that Adam is not naked. He's not naked. He says, I was afraid because I was naked. But in verse 7, Adam and Eve made clothing and they covered themselves. So he's not naked. So what's going on here? Well, Adam is experiencing a, <clears throat> a Hebrews 4 type of nakedness, a different type of, type of nakedness. It's a deeper nakedness. Hebrews 4.13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked. We're not all naked. Physically, we have clothing on. But this isn't what he's talking about. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We can hide from one another, <clears throat> but we cannot hide from God. But this truth does not stop Adam and Eve from trying to hide from God. They are in desperation mode, and they're going to try to hide from God. So how do, how do we hide from God? How does a human being hide from the all-seeing, all-knowing God of the universe? Verse 11 then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? This is a point blank question. Here's Adam and Eve in the garden before God. God says to Adam, did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? Point blank. And again, this is a preview of future judgment where the word of God is the standard by which God will judge you. The word of God. So did you lie? Did you steal? Did you lust? Were you immoral? Were you proud? Were you disobedient? Were you selfish? Did you worship other gods? Matthew 12, 36. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to give an account for every careless word they speak. This is what Jesus is saying. On the day of judgment, you will give an account for every word, every deed, every motive, every thought. All of that will come rushing into the presence of God on judgment day. Now, what do you do? 
What, what do you do? When, I mean, how in the world can you stand in the presence of God? How in the world can you survive that judgment? Well, Adam and Eve, they know. They, they know their figs. Their fig leaves are not covering them before God. And so they're, they're panicking. They're trying to figure out how do we hide from God. And so we see how people try, how we try to hide from God. Verse 12, the man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So how do you hide from God? Answer, blame someone else. We blame other people. We push the responsibility for our sin onto the shoulders of other people. We deflect guilt. It is literally the oldest trick in the book. I mean, this is from the very beginning. It is the oldest trick in the book. This is what we do. We deflect guilt and responsibility. I can see in my mind's eye, I'm not saying this is what it says, but I can see Adam just pointing at Eve before God. It was her. She gave me some fruit to eat, and I ate. And if you study the Hebrew, you see a bus coming down the road and, and Adam throws her under the bus and <laughs> Eve is trampled in the process. He just throws her, right, I mean, no hesitation, right under the bus. More than that, Adam blames God. You have to admire his guts. He has guts. He blames God. He says, the woman you gave to be with me. Adam says, I was very happy hanging out with the animals, cuddling with the koala bears, and then you knocked me out, you stole one of my ribs, and you made this woman. I don't remember asking for her, God. You gave her to me. And this is what sin does to our relationships. Do you want to know what destabilizes marriage, what destabilizes friendships and families and relationships? It is sin. So in Genesis chapter 2, Adam looks at Eve and he says, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. She belongs to me. I belong to her. He is in love with her. He loves her with all of his heart. And then the shame of nakedness, the shame and guilt of sin is experienced before a holy God. And what Adam does is he says, deal with her. It's her fault. It's her fault. And see, we blame others to hide our nakedness to avoid judgment. We blame others to hide our nakedness to avoid judgment. Judgment. Years ago, I was talking with a newly married man, and uh, he and his wife got into a big fight. It was an ugly fight. And he called me, and we were talking through it. And I said, Brother, you need to apologize to your wife right now. Like, just get off the phone, go apologize to her. He lost his temper. It was not a good thing at all. So, so he hung up and went and apologized to his wife. And I don't know, a couple hours later, he called me back, and I said, Hey, how'd it go? And he goes, Terrible. It was terrible. And I said, Terrible? What, what happened? And he was beating around the bush. And uh, I said, okay, brother, just tell me, what did you actually say to her? And he was honest. He said, he said to his wife, honey, I'm sorry for being angry at you, but I wouldn't get so angry with you if you weren't such a basket case. That's what he said to her. And I said, I can't imagine why that didn't go well. I mean, why did this not go well? Why, did, why does he do that? Why did he do that? Why does he say, I wouldn't get so angry with you if you weren't such a basket case? Why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why do we do that? Why can't we just confess? Why can't we just admit what we did was wrong and leave other people out of it? Why can't Adam just say, God, yes, I sinned? Well, it is because Adam is feeling multiple realities at the same time. What he's feeling is that, that God did give me, he's saying, God, you did give me the woman. 
True. And Eve contributed to my sin. True. And I ate. True. So Adam is focused on how Eve contributed to his sin. And what is stunning about Adam's answer is that it's absolutely true and it is absolutely unacceptable. Blaming people will never cover you before God. And most of the time in life, blaming people will never cover you before other people. Typically excuses, the only people that will accept the excuses are the ones making the excuses. It's typically the way that it works. That blaming people will not mitigate the judgment of God one bit. So when you stand before God and you say, well, God, I had dysfunctional parents. I went to a bad church. Someone hurt me when I was young or whatever it is. That might be true. And those things may contribute to your sin. But those excuses will not cover you on the day of judgment. They will not excuse you. You will be held responsible for your choices And so you should take responsibility for your life. You should should aim, what you should aim at in your soul is, I'm not gonna blame other people for my failures, my sin. Even if they've contributed, I'm not blaming them. And I'm gonna take responsibility for my life. But it is terrifying to take responsibility for your life. Why? Genesis chapter three, verse 11, did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Adam only needed to say one word. What's that word? Yes. And to say yes is to stand naked before God in judgment, which is terrifying. And dear friends, there is coming a day where you will stand like Adam and Eve before God in judgment. That day is marked in history, whether you like it or not, whether it makes you feel good or not, that day is marked in history. And blaming people will not cover your nakedness, and your good deeds and your moral effort will not cover your nakedness before God. We need different clothing to stand in the presence of God, which leads to the curse of sin. The curse of sin. Blaming others did not assuage the judgment of God. So God pronounced the consequences of sin, and he begins with the serpent. And we see that the serpent is cursed. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock, And more than any wild animal, you will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. We see here that creation is cursed, that the serpent is more cursed than all the animals. So the animals are now cursed. Creation is under the fall of sin. It has been corrupted by sin, but the the serpent is more cursed than any of the other animals. And this is a reference to the devil, we're dealing, when we look at the serpent, we're dealing with the devil, and it's a picture for us. It's a helpful picture about the nature of sin, that the archangel Lucifer was in heaven, in the presence of God, exalted, and he rebelled. And what does that rebellion against God do? It drives you all the way down to earth, all the way down on the ground, all the way down on your belly, eating dirt. That's the picture. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. And the serpent will be hated. We're gonna get into this more in verse, or next week, but verse 15 says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. We will see this truth play out next week with Cain and Abel. The offspring of the devil are those who reject God. 
who live in rebellion against God, the offspring of the woman, are those who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the Lord who puts hostility between the offspring of the devil and the offspring of the woman. And we see it play out with Cain and Abel, where Cain rises up and kills his brother. And ultimately, the serpent will be crushed. He will be crushed. He, the offspring of the, world, the woman, the singular offspring, there's one offspring that is in mind, the ultimate offspring, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, he will strike your head. The serpent will be crushed. And in the crushing of the serpent, you, serpent, will strike his heel. To be struck, to have your heel crushed is not fatal. To have your head crushed is fatal. And so this is a reference to the cross of Christ, which we will see more next week. But the serpent is cursed, which moves us To Eve, verse 16, he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains and you will bear children with painful effort. So because of pain or because of sin, the joy of having children is is mixed with sorrow. So this is the idea that the joy of having children because of sin, because of the curse of sin in the world, the joy of having children is now mixed with sorrow. The joy of children is not removed fundamentally. Children are a blessing from the Lord, but that joy is mixed with sorrow. In what ways? Labor pains increase, that it's more painful to give birth. Pregnancy complications enter the world at this point. Infertility struggles come into existence. Miscarriages happen. Premature babies are born. Children die during the delivery process, and even moms will die giving birth. And so there is great joy, I mean, almost unimaginable joy in having children. But because of the curse of sin, now it's mixed with sorrow. And not only is having children, the joy of having children mixed with sorrow, the joy of marriage is now mixed with sorrow. Where the joy of marriage still exists, that marriage is still good, it is still a blessing, it is still being used by God to display his glory and the glory of the gospel, but now the joy of marriage is mixed with sorrow. Verse 16, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. So instead of Adam joyfully leading Eve, it's the way God designed it, for Adam to be humble, sacrificial, joyful, loving, and leading Eve as the head, and Eve joyfully submitting to to Adam, instead of this this relationship being filled with unity and love and harmony, now there's a power struggle. This is where the power struggle in marriage enters into the woman, or into the marriage, through the cursing of sin. Your desire, Eve, will be for your husband. This word desire means over-desire. It will be too strong. You will want to control Adam, yet Adam will rule. And for the last however many years, thousands and thousands and thousands of years, there has been a struggle between a man and a wife in marriage. So is marriage good? Yes and amen. Is it a joy? Yes and amen. Why? Because it is a blessing from God. And is marriage hard at times? Yes. Why? Because of sin. So the joy of marriage is mixed with sorrow. Then we see Adam. We see that the joy of work is mixed with sorrow. Verse 17. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat. 
The ground is cursed because of you. Notice work is not cursed. Work is not cursed. Work is a gift from God to human beings. It is the the environment in which work takes place that is cursed. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. Now what will the ground do? It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. Before sin entered the world, the ground produced fruits and vegetables naturally. So the work of Adam, a lot of it was just picking the fresh fruits and vegetables, which it's still work, but it's a good work. I mean, just go, I want some apples today, blueberries, whatever it is. You just go get it. But now the ground is going to work against you. It will produce thorns and thistles, which makes everything worse. The earth is working against you. This is against you. This is why my garden, my backyard, never does very well. It is a really sinful garden. It is, <clears throat> it is filled with sin to the core. That's why it's hard. It, it doesn't produce what I want it to produce all the time. It produces weeds. And this image of thorns and thistles is an accurate picture of the nature of work. It's not just the ground. It's the environment of work. And so... Is work good and satisfying? I mean, do you have those days you work really hard, you get done at the end of the day, and you say, that was a good day's work. That's a good thing. It's a joy. Why is it a joy? God. Is work painful? Is work painful and disappointing at times? Absolutely. Why? Because of sin. The environment of work has been cursed. Because of sin. So here's the summary of the curse. If you want to understand the curse, here's the summary of the curse. The serpent is cursed. The joy of having children is mixed with sorrow. The joy of marriage is mixed with sorrow. The joy of work is mixed with sorrow. Everyone and everyone will die. For you are dust and you will return to dust. And then lastly, get out of the presence of God. That's how chapter 3 ends. Get out of the presence of God. Leave paradise. Get out of here. That doesn't mean God does not love Adam and Eve. It means that because of sin, the way human beings relate to God has fundamentally changed. We are now sinful. And a holy God cannot have a right relationship with sinful people. And so as I was studying this passage this week, this is is the thing that kept coming into my mind. I just kept thinking, this is so depressing. (laughs) It is so depressing. Get out of the presence of God. Everyone will die. Work is going to be hard. Marriage will be difficult. Joy, difficult. Having children, joy, difficult. And the question that came into my mind is, is there any hope? So when you read Genesis chapter 3, you see God, you see God explain the consequences of the sin of Adam and Eve. Is there any hope? And the answer is yes. That even as God judges sin, he gives us all kinds of clues. Clues pointing to future salvation. He's going to explain how God is going to save people. And so in the text, there are eight clues pointing to salvation. That's where I started. And then I said, I'll get them down to three. I'll get down to three clues pointing to salvation, and you're going to get one. So there's a, there are many more. There are many more, but this is my favorite one. I think it's the most helpful one. Clue number one. It's the clearest one. Clues pointing to salvation. Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made clothing from skins 
for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So what's the context? God is kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden, and he guards the entrance of the garden with two cherubim, with flaming swords that they would never be allowed to come back in. But before they get out, he says, got to change your clothes. You're like, what? (laughs) Why does God care about what they're wearing? Why does he care about what they're wearing? And the reason he cares about what they're wearing is because of Genesis 2.17. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is what God promised. And so before Adam and Eve leave the garden, he calls Adam and Eve to himself. He takes an animal. Let's just call it a lamb or whatever the animal was, a cow, doesn't matter. He takes an animal and he says, Adam and Eve, this lamb did not sin. You sinned. This lamb is innocent. You are guilty. And you deserve to die. But this animal will die in your place. And God kills the animal. And he takes the skins of the animal and he clothes them. He says, those fig leaves, they won't do it. You need to be clothed with a substitute, with the blood of someone or something else that died in your place. And from this point on, God sets up a system where an innocent substitute could die in the place of a guilty sinner because the wages of sin is death. And for thousands of years, millions of animals have died to clothe sinners Yet none of these sacrifices, I mean, you read the Old Testament, you you, you see all of the lambs, all of the cows that were sacrificed, their blood was shed. And what the scriptures teach us is that none, none of those animals, the blood of those animals never paid for sin. All of those animals throughout the entire Old Testament, including this animal in Genesis chapter three, is, is pointing to an ultimate sacrifice. It's pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist understood this in the Gospel of John. When when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This lamb in Genesis 3, this animal in Genesis 3, and every other sacrifice in the scriptures is pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into the world to die as our substitute, for our sins. He is the righteous one. He is the blameless one. And he became our substitute at the cross. This is what was happening at the cross. I mean, can, think about the Lord Jesus at the cross. He was beaten and mocked and spit on. And they nailed him to a cross where he hung naked. Why did he hang naked? Why, why did he hang naked before God? Well, he hung naked before God in our place that we might be clothed not with figs and not with the skin of animals, but that we might be clothed with the very righteousness of God. One scholar says, through his death and resurrection, all the guilt of your sin that is yours became his. So what's happening at the cross? All the guilt and shame and nakedness of your sin was put on Christ and all the righteousness that is his. Do you read the New Testament and you see the righteousness of Christ? 
You see his perfect obedience. You see his love and his mercy. He does everything right. And all of the righteousness that is his becomes yours. All of our guilt becomes his, and all of his righteousness becomes ours through the cross. And this is the only way we can stand in judgment before God. We cannot stand clothed by our good deeds. We cannot stand by blaming other people. We must be clothed in the very righteousness of God. And through the sacrifice of Christ, we have been washed clean. By the blood of Jesus, our sins have been removed from us. And I love that the crown that Jesus wore on the cross was not a crown of gold. It was not a crown of diamonds. It was a crown of thorns. Why? It is the sign that the king of kings, the creator of the universe, was cursed for us. The curse that you deserve for your sins was put on Christ, and that is his crown. He was cursed in our place, on the tree, that we might know the blessing of God. And so I hope for the rest of your life, I really mean this, I hope for the rest of your life, when you see Christ on the cross, wearing a crown, you read it in the scriptures, you see it in a picture, I hope you say to yourself, he was cursed for me. He was cursed for me, that I might know the blessing of God. That's why Paul says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, because Christ was cursed and cut off from God for us. And now this king, he offers you forgiveness. He offers you eternal life. He offers you his own righteousness that we might know him forever. And so have you received Christ as your king? Have you received Christ as your Lord, your God, your savior? Have you come before God and said, Lord, I have nothing that I can bring I, I know, you come naked before God, not trying to clothe yourselves with your good deeds. You come naked before God and say, I am a guilty sinner in need of your forgiveness. And if you come that way to God, he'll receive you. You come in your own righteousness, you will go to hell forever. Forever. Your righteousness is no righteousness at all. You must come to God naked, broken, as a guilty sinner, and he will forgive you. He will give you a new life. He will give you his very righteousness. It is the cross that demonstrates his great love for us. Now, with the last couple of minutes, I want to take, I want to take just a second to think about how to apply these scriptures to our lives. And there are two points of application. The first one is for wives. It is for wives. Last week, I dealt with the husbands, gave some instructions. This week, I'm going to give some instructions to the wives. We'll see how far we get. Here we go. Wives. Influence your husbands for good. Wives, influence your husbands for good. What was Adam's sin? Genesis 3.17. And he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. Now, is God saying you should never listen to your wife? Absolutely not. God is saying to Adam, because you listened to your wife instead of to me. That's why sin entered the world. Every husband rightly has a soft spot in his heart for his wife. And that's the way God has designed it. And wives, if you want to be wise, determine to use that soft spot for his good. 
Understand your influence. You have an influence that is hard to even imagine in the life of your husband. You might not feel like you have that much influence. Trust me, you have this type of influence. Proverbs 31, who can find a wife of noble character? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will not lack any, anything good. She rewards him with good, not evil, all the days of her life. Do you want to target on your, with the wall of your life? By the grace of God as an act of worship, say, I will do good to my husband all the days of my life. And something I love about our church, I really mean this, is that our church, by the grace of God, is filled with strong, godly women who love God. And we need more strong, godly women. If we're to be all that God wants us to be, we need more strong, godly, courageous women who love God and love the word of God. And part of this is determining in your heart to use that soft spot in your husband's heart for you, for his good. Let me give you a couple of tips. I give you 10, I'll give you two. First, look at your husband. Maybe don't do this right now, just wait. It'll get awkward if you do this right now. Look at your husband, maybe tonight, sometime soon. Just look at him and tell him, say, sugar, whatever you call him. (laughs) Just look at him. TV's not on. Kids aren't running around. Sugar, I want you to lead our family. And I want to help you lead our family. And I believe you can do it. I want you to lead our family. I want to help you lead our family. And I believe you can do it. He already knows it. He already knows this. So he doesn't need to say that. I don't need to say that to him. Uh, Patrick Lencioni writes, A wife turns to her husband and says, How come you never tell me you love me? The husband says, well, if I told you, I told you I love you when we got married, didn't I? I'll let you know if anything changes. Now, this is not an acceptable answer. And in the same way, wives, it's not acceptable to not say to your husband, I want you to lead. And I want to help you lead. And I think you can do it. That's why I married you. Tip two, appeal to his dignity and nobility. Appeal to his dignity and nobility. Let me say it a different way. Believe in him. Believe in him. Wives know the weaknesses of their husbands better than anyone. Wives, your husband needs someone who will believe in him. And often wives, I don't think wives do this on purpose, but they cut their husbands into pieces. You never do this. You never do this. You're bad at that. I wish you were better. I wish you would do that. You don't do that. Wives have a series of complaints about what they don't like about their lives. Like you have a list. If I said, what, what don't you like about your life? Don't you have a list already? And you'll say to your husband, I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying it's your fault. That's all I'm saying here. <laughs> but you will never motivate a man or a son or anyone by complaining against them. And I'm not saying you can't disagree with your husband. In fact, your husbands need you to disagree. They need you to disagree. And so there are two errors that wives make all the time. Run your mouth or say nothing. Run your mouth, say nothing. Your husband doesn't need either of those. He needs a godly woman who is walking in the spirit of God, 
who will smile at him and love him and tell him when he's wrong. I believe in you, honey. And here's how you can get better. And see, when a man is respected, when you believe in your husband, you will get the best out of him. You will. Now, some men are fools. They're wicked. They will exploit their wives. That's none of you men. That's not who you are. You don't do that. Christians don't do that. If you want the best out of your husband, respect him. Believe in him. You'll get the best out of him. So when you need work done around the house, you need a deep freeze moved, you could say, you know, husband, or husband, honey, you're not in as good a shape as you were anymore because you don't really work out, and I don't know, you're going to hurt yourself if you move that thing, so go ask Bob, neighbor Bob. He's 85, but he's in better shape than you are, so like, just... <laughs> Come on, get, get to work. You know, go ask him to do it. You know, you could say that and that, all of that might be true. But don't say that to him. Say this. Here's a tip. You know, honey, I'm so thankful that I have a big, strong, hairy cow who can just move anything as a husband. He's just big and strong. I mean, you're strong. You can do it. You can, you can do this. And, and just for the record, ladies, you don't say that to your girlfriends. I understand you don't say that to your girlfriends. And husbands, don't say that to your wives. Um, or you'll unleash the kraken in your home, I'm sure. But see, men, <clears throat> if you say that to a man, I'm so thankful that I have a big, strong, hairy cow for a husband, he will die trying to move the freezer. <laughs> he will die. You'll say, that's exactly right. <laughs> and you say, you know what, honey? Um, maybe you should go ask Bob for some help, too, while you're at it, maybe. You can say that, too. That's fine. But believe in him. Believe in him, respect him, and he will perk up. Do good to him. And then lastly, number two. This is for all of us, men, women, children, young, old, everybody. Learn how to apologize to God and others. <clears throat> Learn how to apologize to God and others. The only hope Adam and Eve had when leaving the garden was their new clothing. That's their only hope. Those fig leaves, Adam and Eve, if that's what they were wearing, they would tear each other apart. And they couldn't walk with God. It, it didn't solve their problem. of Fig leaves don't solve your problem of hiding. Animal skins solve that problem. Because now, Adam could go into the presence of God and say, God, what I did deserves death. Thank you for providing a substitute. And relationship can be restored. And the same thing's true in marriage. If you want to have a healthy marriage, wives, learn how to apologize. Husbands, apologize. Roommates, apologize. Family members, learn how to apologize where you can come before your spouse and say, my attitude was bad and it actually deserves death. God should kill me for that. I should go to hell for that. And that's why Christ came, to clothe me, to f pay for my sin, and to clothe me in his righteousness, and I'm really sorry. Will you please forgive me? <clears throat> what I did was sinful, and it was wrong. We don't want to be people who are in hiding. And if you want to know the grace of God, learn how to apologize to God. You want healing from God? Learn how to apologize to him. You want the grace of God? 
apologize. Go to him. What I did demands death. Thank you that you provided a substitute for me. And that will, that will produce transformation. So brothers and sisters, no more hiding. Don't hide. Step into the light. Live in the light by the grace of God, clothed in the righteousness of God. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, thank you, <clears throat> thank you that you've saved us, not by our works, not by our righteousness, but by the work of Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, I'm sure there are people here this morning who are in hiding. God, may, may they come into the light. And I pray that first they would come into the light of your presence and be right with you through the blood of Christ. And Lord, whatever husbands need to humble themselves, I pray they would do that today and apologize to their wife or their kids. And I pray whatever wives need to apologize, that they would come into the light, not clothed in their moral effort, not blaming anyone else, but they would come humbly before their spouse and seek rec reconciliation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.